This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Trevor Chappell. Russell McGregor is an adjunct professor of history at James Cook University, also a bird watcher. Hello, Russell. Uh, good morning. Russell, firstly, is there a difference between a bird watcher, a birder, and a twitcher? Uh, uh, well, yes, they, um, they can be different. They can be merged together. Um, like this, this word twitcher is only a fairly recent one, especially in Australia. But um, generally a twitcher is someone who is particularly enthusiastic, obsessed one could say, with um, finding rare species or adding new new ticks to their lists of birds sighted. Um, bird watcher and birder. Birder, bird watch is the older term okay. in Australia, but uh, birder is a more common term these days to mean the same. So I guess all twitchers are birders, but not all birders are twitchers. Russell, if we go back, were bird watchers important in Australia? Because you would think as you come to a new continent that there are a whole stack of new birds to be able to not only watch, but it's important to actually collate those birds. Yep. Yeah, well, in the um, colonial period in Australia, um, natural history was a big uh, was a big thing. The, you know, the the early scientific understandings of um, Australia fauna and flora and so forth, um, but bird watching as a sort of pastime or recreation dates from. A bit later than that, from the late nineteenth century, late, um, late um, the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, something like that. So there were people that were bird watching and collating, but it wasn't necessarily a recreation. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a different. Well, bird watching comes out of that earlier tradition, but it's. Um, the, the 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 more modern style of bird watching that is to say going out into the um into the country or whatever and um looking at birds basically for fun um although there's a scientific angle to it too emerged out of that earlier uh, natural history tradition but it it's changed somewhat since then were there bird so you would think that when pe- when people came out here, either as convict or, or as settlers, that there mm. would have been a a recreational pursuit of bird watching brought in from England or Ireland or, Ireland or from those areas in the in Europe. Um, the, the, so. no, the the um, the recreation of bird watching, bird watching as something you do in your spare time as a as a as a hobby or recreation begins in. The United Kingdom in the late nineteenth century too, and in uh-huh. and in and in North America, as I say, there's, there's an earlier, the earlier there's an earlier recreational tradition of popular natural history in in the Victorian era, where people went around doing all sorts of collecting and observing of butterflies and minerals and flowers and birds and other things, but it was a a much more. Um, you know, varied sort of pursuit. People weren't just out looking at birds, which is the the distinctive thing about the modern pastime of bird watching. We go out to look at birds, not so, that we ignore everything else. But uh, <laughs> that's the you know that's the central um, focus. 
So, and so we're talking about the late nineteenth century. Yep. So, the, so the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds. That's right. Yep. yep. What were the early organisations in Australia? Um, the earliest organisation um, was the South Australian Ornithologists Association, closely followed by the Royal... Well, if initially it was called the Australasian Ornithologists Union, based in Melbourne, which became in 1910 the Royal Australasian Ornithologists Union, and nowadays it uh, goes under the name BirdLife Australia, after many, many amalgamations, changes, mergers, and the usual sort of things that happen to organisations. So did this start, I would presume, with a group of people that enjoyed birdwatching and decided that it needed to be formalised and that they, was it for, mm. the, for the sharing of information and knowledge? For, yeah, for the sharing of information. Well, there's, there's a few objectives, but yes, this, the, the sharing of information and knowledge about birds was a big factor. Also, amongst the objectives was the protection of birds because... Birdwatching has always been connected with conservation, way back to then. So protecting birds, conserving birds, as well as studying and observing birds were the central objectives among those early birders. And, you know, it's how that's done has changed, but the fundamental objectives of um, looking, studying and conserving are still there today. So it's significant. So it's a really good example of citizen science. It is, yeah. The, the, um, <clears throat> today we call it citizen science. That's a modern term. But um, the um, old older style of you know, bird watching was very much in the mould of what today we call citizen science. I mean, it's of course it's done different. There's no, uh, there's no. Um, apps on phones or convenient electronic devices like that. Everything's done in, you know, writing and print and so forth. But it's the same sort of principle of, um, of ordinary people, um, contributing to scientific knowledge. Yeah. So you need to know what scientific knowledge needs to be contributed to, or mm. were these groups also uh, at the forefront of working out what scientific knowledge needed to be looked at? Um, yes, they were. Um, remember, at, well, going back to the, to the beginnings of those organisations into, into the early 20th century and for, you know, some time afterwards, um, very few, uh, professional ornithologists were in Australia, very few in the world for that matter. Most ornithological science, such as it was, was conducted by amateurs, by enthusiasts, by bird watchers. Um, so, you know, the, there's... It's, it, it is a different world to that today where there's a taken for granted acceptance that the, the sort of higher order science is done by professional scientists in museums, universities and bodies like that. Um, this was, this was quite different. There were a few such people, but very, very few. So the, the, the main ornithological work was done by um, 
bird watchers. And, I mean, it makes sense in some ways because observation takes long periods of time over mm. vast yep. areas. And for mm. one single person to be able to do all of that work would be really difficult. Indeed, yes, yeah. It, it's a um, collaborative venture. Um, a lot of a lot of um, bird watching then as now was done uh, close to where people lived, you know, mm. because birds are everywhere basically. So a lot of work was done um, close to home, wherever home was for people. But there were expeditions, you know, mounted to um, more far-flung places to find out more about the birds of Cape York Peninsula or the Kimberleys or whatever. Can you give us an example of some research that may have been done by these types of group as far as different bird species are concerned? One of the um, examples concerns a um, uh, a bird called the night parrot, which I guess is a um, topical sort of one because it was um, long thought to be extinct and was only um, recently rediscovered. Um, and so the um, various expeditions were mounted uh, into... Um, Central Australia in search of the night parrot uh, in the early 20th century, including expeditions by a guy called Lawson Whitlock and others. The conditions under which they were uh, conducting their work were basic, to say the least. You know, mm. these people are travelling by uh, horse and buggy, or in the case of searching for the night parrot, by camel. They're, um, you know, camping under pretty basic sort of um, canvas tents and so forth, um, and um, searching unsuccessfully, as it happened, for this particular bird for um, for these rare species. Given that, because you mentioned that one of the earliest ones was in South Australia and then came Victoria, mm. and I presume other states then follow, mm. was there... Was it important that they communicate with each other? And I'm thinking about migratory birds because there are a whole stack of issues that you think mm. about with Australian species because they move around a lot and there'd need to be coordination between the different groups as well. Yeah, there's a lot of um, communication, a lot of connections. This is one of the reasons why these organisations were um, set up to facilitate that sort of cooperation, collaboration, uh, which is needed. Um, remember, too, that in, in the early 20th century, the, the amount of European knowledge of Australian birds, there was a, a lot of holes in that knowledge, a lot of... Um, Unknowns, you know, the, for example, in terms of distributions, you know, where, where did such and such a species occur? Were they, um, here or there? How abundant were they and so forth? Was, um, there was quite sketchy knowledge about these things. Russell, I've got a text here that asks whether or not the Guild League at primary schools is still in operation. The Guild League still exists in Victoria, I think only in Victoria, but I don't think it has that name any longer. Do we know, um, do we know when the Guild League started? 
1909, the Gould League began. It began under the name the Gould League of Bird Lovers, which I think is a much nicer name uh, because that was the objective to encourage um, people to appreciate birds and thereby to protect them and conserve them. That's the objective. The idea was particularly to influence school children um, towards having a conservationist attitude. That's still the objective of the Gould League. It's broadened out beyond birds since then. But, um, yeah, the, the idea was to encourage kids, um, not just by um, book learning either, but also by getting them out into the bush looking at or into the parks, whatever, in many cases, I guess it must have been, um, to look at birds and admire them, appreciate them. Was that only native birds or introduced species as well? And has there been a separation of appreciation or um, information on both or either? Or is it important to have both, Russell? The Yeah. Attitudes toward native birds has undergone... or Attitudes to introduced, as against native birds, I meant to say, has undergone something of a shift over the years. Um, the Gould League of Bird Lovers did specify that they were about um, preserving and protecting native birds, but that that um, was never really rigidly adhered to um, until uh, sometime maybe about the 1960s, something like that. There was a fairly easy appreciation to some extent anyway, of introduced species as well as native species. People knew that introduced species uh, could have harmful effects on the populations of native species. People knew that. Uh, but there was nonetheless um, say, a less antagonistic view toward introduced species generally than tends to be the case today. Russell, when did we start to see early publications um, on birding, yeah. Uh, again, it's um, there's no there's no um, hmm, definitive sort of time, but yeah. the, the, the 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 turn of the twentieth century, when the um, Australasian Ornithologist Union, for example, begins the uh, its um, journal. Um, so and and. Coming a little later, like in the 1910s, 1920s, there's quite a uh, upsurge of, you know, popular books on birds, some of them with wonderful titles, like Alec Chisholm's Mateship with Birds, published in 1922. Uh, Michael joins us. Hello, Michael. Hello, Trevor. Hello, Russell. Uh, Russell, look, I Hello. didn't hear the start of uh, this, but I just heard you talking about the uh, the Gould League. Yep. Just wondering if you... I was just thinking about the other day, I went to summer's camp when I was a primary school kid, and mm. uh, we all... Well, a lot of us anyway, I think we had to sign up, got a whole lot of stuff delivered to our homes after we mm. returned back from mm. camp, and we got all these beautiful photos and posters and uh, magazines and stuff. And I recall there was a guy, uh, and I think he might have even been at the camp at that stage early in his life, and he ended up seeing to be the main spokesman, at least down in Melbourne, called, was it Alan Reed? 
I, I, look, I know Alan from broadcasting because um, yeah. Alan used to be with Derek Gill's program. He was also before that on the Lane Canties. Yes. He's been around for a long time. Yeah. And, I mean, he was an absolute bird lover. And, and now, Russell, we get down here, we get a guy called Sean uh, Dooley. But, yes. yes. And he, he's a, um infectious character too. But I just wondered <laughs> if you'd come across Alan uh, Reid at all. Oh yes, yes. I've 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 I, um, I've come across his um, his name, his um, writings. I've um, I've not met the man, but yeah. There, I mean, he's, he's a, certainly. A, yeah. It shows the great passion that there are amongst people as far as birds and bird watching is concerned. Russell, did it reach? A, I mean. I understand that there are a lot of people now, but when did we start to see a real passion for bird watching and a lot of people joining organisations? Was it around the same time as the Guild League, towards the twenties, thirties, or forties? Um, yeah, the, I think I think bird watching's always been a passionate sort of um, enterprise for those who do it. Um, the numbers. Oh, in in Australia, actually, the um, the the numbers of People who go birding until recently, well, the proportion of the population who um, go birding as a as a you know a, as a regular or fairly frequent pastime is actually rather lower than in in the case of uh, the UK or the USA. I don't really know why that is, but there, um, the proportion of the population that goes birding is actually bigger than here. But so in, in Australia, it's just been a sort of steady sort of growth. Although, um, sometime in the late 20th century, the, um, popularity of birding picked up sometime around the 1970s and thereafter. I wonder whether or not, as well, there are people that don't consider themselves to be birders or part of groups or organisations that just love them and look out the windows at them regularly and keep their own little notes. There are, I am sure, many, many thousands of such people who, who, um, yeah, who uh, do it simply as a um, as a solitary sort of activity, or maybe a family sort of activity. Yeah, I'm sure that there are many, many people who do that and uh, wouldn't or um, don't particularly think of going on excursions with bird clubs or anything like that. I mean, it's certainly there's there's nothing unusual at all about people looking at birds with all sorts of degrees of enthusiasm or casualness, admiring birds and so forth. It's a, it's yeah, ubiquitous. A text here saying, hi Trev, is it true that the black swan is only native to Australia and that Europe were very interested in its discovery? Yes, it is. The, the black swan is um, unique to Australia and um, it did... Uh, it's it, it, news of its existence back in um, Europe in the 17th century did did um, cause quite a stir. Uh, it was a you know it's a the sort of <laughs> species that um, people think thought then did not exist. Uh, text here also that says is the does what bird is that book still exist? Yeah, what bird is that? Yes, this is this is uh, Australia's. I guess most classic uh, field guide by a guy called Neville Cayley. What bird is that? First came out in 1931. Um, 
and it's it's been republished in so many new editions and new formats that uh, I've lost count of them. I think the last one that I know of came out in a big commemorative edition in 2011. Um, I don't know that the, it's I don't know that it's still coming out as a. I mean, it was meant as a field guide, you know, a, a book that you take when you take when you went out birding so you could identify what you saw it actually it's it by comparison to the good field guides we have today it's not particularly good but people have a attachment to it and so it's it's been republished in all sorts of wonderfully lavish new editions some of them much too huge to lug around when you're actually going birding thus i'm sure there are plenty of apps that do very similar things Oh yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, absolutely. These today, um, yeah, birding for print versions of um, field guides are still used, but most people, I think, would normally use an app on their phone, which has uh, a good many advantages over the old print guide. Not the least of it being identifying calls, because one of the one of the um, you know, main ways we identify birds in the field is by their call or their song. And, um, you know, trying to give a verbal description of what the uh, song of a butcher bird sounds like or, you know, how a lyre bird calls is pretty difficult. But you can, you can record it and it's on the, on the phone and play it and, yeah. We'll go much back to more convenient. calls in just a sec. I just wanted to find out, were there people that were recognised as early bird watchers? Were there people who were recognised as such? Yeah, so when you go back and take it from the beginning of bird watching that were recognised as at the forefront? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's like, like all human enterprises, uh, there's some people who, whatever reason, for their um, special skills, their more pushy manner or whatever it might be, who um, come to the fore of the, of the pack and others who stay more in the background. So, I mean, all, all things people do are like that. I think that there's, that um, some people, Gain a name, gain a reputation, gain a profile, and others um, don't particularly. Uh, when you take a look at that, because there would be a whole lot of information that would have been collated. So early bird watchers would have collected birds and specimens. Mm. There would have been mm. eggs. Mm. There would have been a whole stack mm. of information. How mm. was that information then shared amongst other groups? Um, in the early 20th century, for example, it would be shared via uh, the usual sort of technologies and communications of the day, via letters to a large extent, via publications. There's a, there's a fairly, um, well, quite active publication program going on with, you know, with these, these, um, these organisations had their own journals, they had, um, at a slightly later date, newsletters and then books. But a lot of the communi- a lot of the um, communication is via letters. Was that? And then so though- that's some of the things that I'm I'd be um, that I'm looking at now. I'm, hmm. I'm researching this topic. Uh, um, hopefully soon again at the National Library. And so you know, looking at part of that involves looking at the. Um, papers of various birders from the past and so looking at the letters they wrote to each other communicating 
this sort of stuff. So it has been collated and that has been put together. So there's a lot of information that has been collated and put together from all of those individual journals. Oh, oh, no, books. it's not, not collated and put together. It's, it's just, you know, collections of, collections of, uh, personal papers of AJ Campbell or Sidney Jackson, people who were birders. And it's like other collections of papers, they sit in places like the National Library and historians like me come along and, um, sift through this stuff um, to um, find hopefully what we're looking for but they're, they're not it's not collected or collated with a view to um, you know uh, revealing much about bird watching per se, that's what I do as yep. the historian the, the, the library has collected it and put it together in its own sort of way but What's yep. it like actually getting that information, though, and then working out what to do with it? It's exciting. It's frustrating. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, oh, it's, I'm an historian, so this is the sort of thing that I do. This is the sort of thing I enjoy doing, even though, you know, despite the frustrations. But, you know, you sometimes get... Um, I don't know, you encounter collections of letters and papers and so forth that are pretty boring and, you know, not showing you much, and then you come across others that are just wonderful and exciting and you can really see something of the personality of the um, people behind those letters that were written 100 years ago. What's it? Can you give us an example of those letters or the people that write them and the information within them? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll exemplify with the guy whose biography I published a couple of years ago, Alec Chisholm, uh, who was a, at one stage, a really notable, um, uh, birder in Australia, uh, lived from 1890 to 1977, and, um, from the 1920s till about the 1960s, he probably was the, the um, public, the, the the most prominent um, birder in Australia. So yeah, reading through, and there's there's a big collection of his um, papers. They're in quite a muddle, but there's a big collection of his papers in the Mitchell Library, State Library of New South Wales. And um, I spent. Um, Quite a long time going through um, those papers, and um, he's the sort of character whose personality does come out through um, what he's um, um, written. He gained a reputation in old age as a rather cranky old man, and I think it's quite a justified reputation for his old age, but um, in his youth... Um, he wasn't. And even in his old age, one thing that really comes across is just the, um, sheer joy of encountering birds. The, the, um, the, the way that, uh, it's a sort of almost like a, a, a boyish sort of innocence of, um, you know, responding to the natural world around him. So I said he was, he was also, um, involved in organisations like the Royal Australasian Ornithologist Union and he was um, certainly able to, you know, deal with the intricacies of um, organisations, institutions and stuff like that. 
uh, but but when he's actually out in the bush interacting with birds, the thing that comes across is just the um, the joyous engagement with birds that he had. Um, Peter, hello. You there, Peter? Hello? No, we'll go to Lindy. Oh. Hello, Lindy. Okay. Hello, Trevor. How yes. are you? Good, Lindy. A few years ago, I I found, um, well, I didn't. I've got reflective glass on my windows, mm. and I quite often have birds that crash into it. Yes. Well, uh, one day, um, this very strange bird I've never seen in my whole life. I live in the western suburbs of Sydney. Oh. Uh, crashed into it and knocked himself out. So I, I, I picked him up and I took him inside and I put him in a bird cage, a, a, a budgie, old budgie cage I had. And I didn't know what to feed it and it was so unusual and it was very woozy. I didn't know what to feed it or mm. I gave it water. And and um, I rang up my local um, zoologist. A zoological uh, bird uh, people out here. That's a zoo, a zoo out here. Mm. So uh, I think you might have known them. Am I allowed to say their name? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Featherdale. Yep. And um, were they helpful? They came across straight away, and um, once they saw it, they said, "We want it, type of thing," and they took it away. You know, but I would have loved to have let it go in it. You know, with it in nature again, um, and uh, maybe you could have identified the bird and known where to release it because it doesn't come from around this area. See, people, mm. Russell, love to be able to help birds, and, and especially yes. with the ones in their own areas as well. And this part mm. of that is identification processes too. Mm. Yeah, look, there's, there's a great deal of popular interest in birds. BirdLife Australia, for example, has an uh, annual um, backyard bird count and uh, where we have, we have people from all over Australia just do these um, counts of the um, birds that they see in their own backyard or their own local park or whatever, and they provide a, a convenient apps to help, to help you identify the birds. And that um, draws in you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe I'm not sure what the numbers are now mm. of enthusiastic people who people who don't you know normally go bird watching to um, to record their observations of birds where they live. Yeah, I've got a text here which is really Terry from Queenscliff says, Trevor, this discussion is opportune for me because this weekend just passed was supposed to have been the Federation of Zebra Finch Society of Australia's annual show. It was to be held here at Kingsliff but had to be cancelled. The Federation brings together the enthusiasts from across Australia that love this beautiful little native finch, mm. um, which is interesting because uh, so are there people that are into specific um, types of birds as well? Oh sure, yeah. Um, but in the, the the case just you've just um, given, it's it's about you know cage birds, which is uh, another another thing again. Although um, not so much today, but in the past, uh, bird watchers might also be enthusiasts enthusiasts for um, you know caged birds. Um, but in terms of bird watching, um, the. 
People may have a special interest in particular birds or particular kinds of birds, um, but we, 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 we tend to be pretty broad in our interests there so that, you know, sort of we're enthusiastic about birds right across the spectrum. Well, Zebra finch is an interesting species, though. It's mm. an Australian species. It's become one of the most popular caged birds um, around the world. Uh, not not quite to the extent of the other, which I think is the most popular caged bird in the world, the budgerigar, which, of course, is also Australian. Russell, photography has changed a mm. lot over the years, and you would mm. think that changes in photography would have made it a lot better for people that are interested in bird watching, especially how difficult bird-taking photographs would have been years ago. Certainly, yeah. That, um, and that's that's a topic that I'm um, looking at um, in quite a bit of detail. Um, I'd have to say that as a bird photographer, uh, I'm no great shakes at all. My bird photographs, by sheer luck, I think, sometimes turn out quite well, but usually don't. But um, certainly the advent of the digital camera has made um, photographing birds so much easier than in times past. But um, in bird watching, as in all things, you know, technology and technological advancements are an important um, an important thing, and. Uh, looking back to the early 20th century, uh, some of the feats that people did to photograph birds are just remarkable. It certainly wasn't something for the faint-hearted. So, um, you know, early 20th century, photographs of birds, they're usually birds at nest because that's the only time they sat still. Um, and often photographers might climb... 20, 30 more metres up into trees. Uh, and there's some wonderful photographs of these guys, you know, up, up in the trees, photographing birds at the nest, or sometimes, you know, wading through swamps with their enormous cumbersome cameras to photograph the egrets or whatever nesting in the swamps. And it would have been taken, well, it, it still does take an awful lot of patience. Um, well, maybe not so much with nests. It's still, it's still. Oh, it takes an. It took an incredible amount of patience. I'm amazed when I read these reports of uh, early 20th century bird photographers. I'm amazed at the patience they, the, at times, the, you know, just to to find the the bird, to find it at nest, and to set up a, an appropriate shot might take days literally to get three or four photographs. That's that's the sort of patience required. Today, you know, I go out with birds with their enormous um, telephoto lenses and they can fire off, a, you know, a um, hundred shots in as many seconds. So it's um, – but uh, still getting, getting the good bird photograph, how to do it has changed somewhat. But to get good photographs – is still something that requires patience, and not just patience, but also knowledge. You know, to know what you're looking at, to know where you're likely to find the bird that you want to photograph, and so forth. And, I mean, and along with that, it's not only the patience um, and and the ability, but we've got to remember that these people are amateurs and not necessarily professionals, mm. and so it's for the love of and not for the money. 
Oh, indeed, yeah. Certainly, it's for the um, for the love of and not for the money. Um, bird watching isn't well. I guess there are yes, there are professionals these days. I guess in terms of like bird guides people who um, uh, guide others for pay. But by and large, um, bird watching is is done for the love of it, for the love of the birds and the activity. And in the case of the photographs, uh, um, the photograph. Apart mm. from our own backyards, are there certain meccas, are there certain places that are really good for bird watching, not just for twitching, but just for bird watching? Oh, yeah, there are many such places. But as you said, the backyard, m- most most of us bird watchers uh, do most of our birding not that far from home. Like we not necessarily in the actual backyard, but, you know, within half an hour or so's drive from home. And, you know, so even suburban uh, places and places just beyond the urban fringe uh, can be very rich bird areas. Certainly, you know, where I live on the, um, in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, don't have to go far at all to um, find places with lots of interesting birds. Um, but in Australia, there are um certainly some birding meccas um cape york peninsula iron range places like that would have to rate very high because up there at iron range in particular which is right up near the tip of cape york peninsula you get um all sorts of um species that are also found in papua new guinea russell is there uh, an amazing place mm, to go to right yep. across the country and thank you for telling us a little bit about it today 